I think it's my wife who loves it even more. When does that ever happen? Okay. Pretend like you didn't see that. Revelation will show you behind the veil. I will not. Just saying. Okay. If you're visiting with us, apologies. We are this morning in Revelation, in all seriousness, and we have been for a few weeks now. And so that's where we'll be this morning. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to look there. And um, if you don't, or even if you do, you're welcome to look in your bulletin. On page 6, you'll find the text of this passage, Revelation 4. And this is the beginning of the second vision of the course of visions that unfold in this very strange book at the back of your Bibles. The first vision showed John and his reunion with his old friend, the glorified Christ, and the dictation of the letters to the seven churches. That was the first vision. This is the beginning of the second one in chapter 4. And here in this one, we get to go somewhere where not just anybody gets to go. It's kind of like, if, if you remember, as a kid at school, the teacher's lounge. Some of you are teachers. I can remember when I was a kid and going to school in the 70s and 80s, and the teacher's lounge was on the back hallway, kind of near the cafeteria, and it was the, it was the secret place. It was the place where students didn't go. And I can just remember kind of seeing that door cracked open at different times as people were passing. And there was always kind of smoke back in there. What's the deal, teachers? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. It's kind of like Revelation, I guess. And uh, so we get to go somewhere like that. But this is much, much better than that. Remarkably better. And um, once again, as we read this, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, your Old Testament skills and your Chronicles of Narnia imagination will serve you really well today if you can draw those out. And if you don't feel like you have those, then I challenge you to uh, consider that you do. God made you, and therefore you have those things. And you young Christians, as we read this passage of Scripture, there are some very serious picture-drawing opportunities right here. And so if you are a drawer of pictures, I would love to see what you come up with. This is what John writes, Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. That once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who's seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord our God, we pray that you would open our eyes, even as you open this door to your apostle, your servant John. Enable us, Lord, to see what John sees. Allow us, Lord, the privilege of worshiping you, of being awakened from our dull lives, our sleepy minds and hard hearts. Father, would you come and give us, by your Spirit, the ability to worship you in spirit and truth. Make us new this morning, we pray, because of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I was checking the weather on weather.com, typically a pretty harmless endeavor, I suppose, except for the fact that weather.com, if you've ever been there on that website, they always have this string of interesting stories to tell. Click on these different pictures and find out this fascinating story, and I could do that all day. They, they come up with all kinds of fascinating things. One of them, though, was a picture of an old barn in an abandoned field. And the caption, to draw you in, was this. It said, You won't believe the frightening scene a group of teenagers found when they went through this door. You won't sleep for days. I was tempted, but I was chicken. I like my sleep. I really didn't want, by a click of the internet, to not sleep for days. And so I figured, you know, I'm not going to take the bait. And I didn't. The Apostle John didn't have that option. John here is shown a door and invited in. Up to now in the book of Revelation, the scenery has come to him, but now he's going to it. If you notice the movements that happen in this book at this point, John doesn't get a chance to think twice here. He doesn't get a chance to say, no, I don't think I'll go. He simply goes because he's commanded to do so, and he has no say in the matter. And it's not just to heaven as we might conceive of it to which he goes, but rather it is into the immediate presence of God himself. Now, this is very much a symbolic picture of worship that we've just read here. It's a fascinating and beautiful picture if you allow your Chronicles of Narnia imagination to draw you in and to not scoff at this and think, well, this doesn't fit my worldview. Oh, it it does, because God made you. This is a symbolic picture of worship, and we all would do really well every Sunday morning to read Revelation 4 before coming to church. You know that? 
you should read Revelation every Sunday morning before you come to church. It would be a great passage of Scripture to read. Because beyond the sleepy eyes and the yawning voices, beyond the tuning of instruments and the rustling of bulletin papers, this is what's really happening. This is another reason why Revelation is so important to us, because it refreshes us in ways that we could not possibly fabricate on our own. One theologian, Vern Poitras, put it this way. He said, Revelation renews us, not so much by telling us about particular future events, which is what we get caught up in, don't we? But rather by showing us God, who will bring all events to pass in His own time and in His own way. Revelation renews us by showing us God. Revelation offers us, as it were, to use Revelation language, a door to heaven. It offers us a stairway to heaven, as one old rock band longingly put it. A dollar after church, if you can tell me who that was. I'm just kidding, because I'll tell you who that was. So, let's go with John. Let's go to where he goes this morning. Let's click on the link. Let's don't be chickens. And let's go to where he goes. Let's walk through the door because this door is an invitation to a one-of-a-kind place. Verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. Those are three big words right there for John to hear and to wonder what's coming next. Now the preposition here is no mistake up. But it's ill-conceived for us to think that heaven is somewhere up there. We tend to want to confine it to a place in the clouds, and that's why we draw pictures of it in the clouds. It's kind of our limitation of what we're able to do. But heaven isn't simply up there. It is no doubt the place where God resides. But how are we to conceive of heaven and earth together and figure out these two spheres of existence and how do they relate? Do they relate? What are we to think about this? Well, there are different ways that people throughout the ages have tried to figure this out. One of them is pantheism. Maybe you know that from your your college religion class. Pantheism is from the Greek words that mean everything God. Pantheism It's the idea that the two spheres are are really just one, that they're completely united together and indistinguishable one from the other. God resides in everything, and everything is God. This is an idea that many today tend to like. The ancient Greeks had their gods of the sea and of fire and of the sky and of love and of war. The, The Greeks had gods for everything. The trees were divine. The rivers were divine. Everything was God. The problem with pantheism is, practically speaking, is that there's no higher authority than you, who are God, to deal with evil when it comes. And no doubt evil does come into your life at some point. Pantheism has no answer for the question of evil. Another way to think about it is deism, which is really the opposite of pantheism. Deism suggests that the two spheres of heaven and earth are totally separate. That God, perhaps having created all things, set the earth to spinning and then backed away and said, let's see what happens. 
And God has no intervention, it suggests, in normal daily life in this world. That might be okay if you're among the privileged and wealthy of the upper class in this world and live in a comfortable place where a military peacefully, well, not so peacefully, militaries don't do things so peacefully, but they provide peace for you, don't they? And if that's your case, which it is for most of us, then deism is probably okay, but it's not so good if you're poor. Because, again, the problem of evil is a troubling thing here. There's no real answer for it because there's no higher authority. Many people today are religious, but they have no place for church. And they're just being consistent with their worldview because God's not there anyway. So why bother being a part of that? That's deism. But then there's the Christian view that God may be in heaven, but he loves his creation because he made it. And he makes himself known in it. There's an intersection between the two. And you can see that there are those who have gone. In other words, there are people of earth who've been directly exposed to heaven, like John. But there are very few. The Old Testament gives some pattern for it. Ever since the Garden of Eden, sinful man has been in and of himself inadequate to be in the presence of God And the gospel is God's remedy for that. The gospel is God's pursuit of the intersection of heaven and earth to bring back the unity of his creation. Jacob was one in the Old Testament, the one whose name was changed to Israel, who saw heaven in a sense. You remember Jacob's dream, his vision. He saw a ladder and angels descending and ascending upon the ladder, God's expression to Jacob to say, I've not abandoned the earth, Jacob. Heaven may seem far away, but it intersects as I will for it to do so because I'm out to redeem. Jacob saw heaven. Isaiah, you know, saw heaven. He had that famous vision in Isaiah 6. We sang of it earlier. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the seraphim, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah saw heaven in much the same way. Ezekiel, a little bit less known among us, perhaps, but Ezekiel had a more bizarre picture of heaven in his vision than Isaiah did. Ezekiel saw something much more similar to what John saw here. Ezekiel even saw four living creatures that looked a lot like the strange extraterrestrials that you read about a moment ago. And Ezekiel saw God on the throne and received his call to prophetic ministry that way. Daniel, of course, saw a vision of heaven. He saw the Ancient of Days on the throne judging the nations. And all of those are very similar to what John saw here. But those were visions. They were visions. The Old Testament also gives a pattern for the reality of entering into this place. And it's what happened in the the tabernacle and in the temple. The book of Exodus gives a a detailed description of the construction and design of the tabernacle, the the tent in which the Israelites worshipped God and traveled as they did through the wilderness. God provided a place for his presence among them. And a part of that place was what was called the most holy place. The inner part of the inner part of the sanctuary of the tabernacle and later the temple And we'll see more of that in Revelation. Again, you got to know your Old Testament skills. But this most holy place was to be entered only once per year. 
and only by one person, the high priest. And even then, only with certain preparations could he enter. And he did so in order to stand in the presence of God himself and to make atonement for the people before God. Any deviation from the instructions would result in death. You couldn't just walk into the presence of God casually, cavalierly, and not say, yes, sir, in just the right way, because God is holy. And so John, seeing this open door, had to wonder, if I pass through that door, if I even look through it, I will die. So he wasn't given the option. He was given the invitation. And John would then see those who are there already. Just like the first vision, again, the second is highly symbolic. All of them in Revelation are. And so we have to wonder as we read this passage, does heaven actually look like this, literally? That's not the point. So get yourself beyond that and have a bigger picture of what's going on. That's not the point here. There are 24 elders here. They're clothed in white with crowns and they're on thrones that are surrounding the throne. Okay, so there are elders here. What does that mean? Are they people? Are they men or women or both? Are they angels? Are they some strange creatures? What are they? They're 24 elders. That's all we know. And there are 24 of them. Well, numbers are highly symbolic in Revelation, and and really the best we can kind of figure with this, and it makes some sense, is to say that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel for the Old Covenant and the 12 disciples, the apostles, for the New Covenant. Therefore, they represent, as it were, the whole of the people of God throughout all of history is who these characters are. And then there are four living creatures. This is where it gets really interesting. Four living creatures. They're all full of eyes. I mean, imagine that. One of them is like a lion. Now, it doesn't say one of them is a lion. It says one of them is like a lion. I don't know exactly what that means. One of them is like an ox. One of them has the face of a man. One of them is like an eagle in flight. It's a strange picture, isn't it? I mean, it's really weird. Let's be honest. And it's a version of what Ezekiel had seen in his vision of four living creatures. And Ezekiel called his cherubim or cherubs. Isaiah called his version seraphim. Ezekiel called them cherubim. And these look much more like Ezekiel's. And so I would say to you, if you have a baby in your house or maybe a baby on the way and Aunt Susie comes and picks up your child and says, oh, what a sweet little cherub. You might ought to tell Aunt Susie to read Revelation. And then come back and try again. Because that's not what you have here in this picture. These are not sweet little babies. And we can't be exactly sure of their meaning and and what they represent. But it seems very much like all the natural creation, doesn't it? You've got a lion and an ox and an eagle and a man. And they're like these things. They somehow represent them. They're covered in eyes. In some sense, like God, they can see all things. They're present everywhere. I think it's like all of creation is represented in this place. This is the natural creation. The the church is there. The creation is there. And, oh, there's just one more character, isn't there? At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now, you know who this is. You know who it is. 
But you have to wonder about John's description. These are precious stones that were valued for jewelry in the first century world, jasper and carnelian. And it's not really a full description of who this is. You know, you kids who are back to school, maybe you had to write one of those essays for your teacher to describe what you did over the summer. And maybe you wrote something like, if you went to the ocean, maybe you said to a beach trip, you said, the ocean had the appearance of topaz and diamonds. I doubt that you wrote that in your paper, but you could have. And your teacher probably would have said, well, that's really interesting. It's very clever and it's very poetic, but tell me more, because it's not a complete description of your, of your experience. And we likewise might say to John, John, look, okay, this is really clever, John. It's poetic. I appreciate the jasper, the carnelian, exactly whatever those things were. But I don't really get it, John. And I think he would have replied to say, exactly. That's my point. You don't get it. And you can't possibly get it because God is beyond description. The other day in the evening, the boys and I took a bike ride and we rode west down our street right at sunset. We came up over a hill and the the sun was just right in our faces. We could hardly see it all. That's in a sense what John is seeing here. It's much more than he can possibly gaze upon. N.T. Wright is a theologian who says it this way. He said, speaking of God in the Christian sense is like staring into the sun. It's dazzling. But actually what you must do is look away from the sun itself and enjoy the fact that by its light you can see everything else clearly. God is beyond description. And this is who's there. John, surely at this point, astonished that he's still alive having seen these things, now gets to see not just who's there, but what they're doing as he observes a -a one-of-a-kind event. Now, the throne is there. Did you notice, you English teachers, and I know like half of you are English teachers, you noticed the repetition of the throne, didn't you? Twelve times in these few verses, this throne is referred to, and everything in the scene is either on the throne or around the throne, or beside the throne, or from the throne, or before the throne. The throne is kind of important here. The throne is kind of central to this passage, you might say. The the 24 elders, again representing the church, and the four living creatures representing all of creation, are all there with respect to the throne. It's like the the four winds from the four corners of the earth have swept through all things and brought them all together for one event, and that is to worship God. After all, the four creatures are ascribing holiness to Him. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Again, it recalls Isaiah's vision, isn't it? The seraphim were saying the same thing. God is holy. And these four strange creatures, again, I think representing all of creation, are very much like the Psalms, which tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day, they pour forth speech. Night to night, they reveal knowledge. Day and night, they never stop. All of creation ascribes holiness to God. And to be holy means what? To be distinct to be set apart, to be more than unique, but to be one of a kind, actually. And that's exactly what God is. 
You remember Moses at the burning bush. The bush was speaking to him. It was burning, but not burning up. It was a strange scene. You have to get used to that if you're going to read the Bible. And God spoke to him through the bush, and Moses said, if I'm going to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let his slaves go, who am I going to say sent me because he's not going to listen to me? And you know what God said, right? He said, tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. Kind of like John's description. I don't understand. Exactly. I am sent you. That is the being one. Now, we don't tend to use the be verb in this sort of way about ourselves, do we? Because we're not the I am. The point is that he's the one who was and is and is to come. This phrase, the Hebrew phrase for I am came to be the, the name Yahweh that the ancient Israelites used to refer to him. But you know what? They wouldn't say the word. They would write it, but they wouldn't say it. Because I am means that nothing can define me. Nothing can paint me into a corner or put me in a box. I'm beyond description. I am holy. And so Orthodox Jews, even today, still will not say the word. It's kind of like Harry Potter saying Voldemort. And everyone's stunned and shocked. You can't say that name. Just call it the name. They were afraid Voldemort was an imposter. This one is not the imposter. And out of respect for his holiness, they wouldn't say the name. The 24 elders are doing something else, though. They're acknowledging worthiness. Whenever the four creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him and worship him. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things. Now, we do these things all the time. Whether you're aware of it or not, all the time you're ascribing holiness, you're, you're calling something to be unique, or you're acknowledging worthiness. There has never been a human being in the history of the world who has not enthroned something or some things. Children, careers, educations, retirements, cultural preferences. We take all of those things and, the, you, know, you know the list is much longer, right? We take all of those things and put them up on the throne and we call them holy, we call them worthy, and we orient our lives entirely around those things. It's what we do. Anything that we think is greater than we are or anything that we think should be greater than anyone else, that's what we're going to put on the throne. Even music. So, listen, I don't know all of you, and, and you may not be a Christian. Maybe you know that you're not a Christian, profess not to be, perhaps. And it may seem odd to you to worship God, to call Him holy and worthy. And, and maybe you think, you know, this is what Christians do, and that's fine for them, but I don't do that. But worship is the most natural the most human thing that you ever do because it's how you were designed. And you don't have to be a Christian. In fact, you don't even have to be at church to worship. The Kennedy Center Honors is a black tie event that happens every year at the Kennedy Performing Arts Center in Washington, D.C. They will, each year with this event, honor certain performing arts contributors throughout history, musicians or 
actors or, or movie makers, etc., all kinds of performing arts who have contributed significantly to the, the culture and the entertainment of people. And they wouldn't say it this way, but I would say that they've contributed to the beauty that God created in all of the world. In 2012, the Kennedy Center Honors, one of their honorees was Led Zeppelin. That's that band I was asking about earlier. You who are kind of throwbacks with me to the 70s and 80s. You remember Led Zeppelin, that that British band who wrote all kinds of songs in the in the wild kind of heavy metal rock days of the 70s and 80s. 45 years ago, Jimmy Page, their, their uh, composing musical electrical guitarist, was piecing together a musical composition that, that he took a while to put together, and he was taking from here and pulling from there. And his goal was to create something that sort of broke the rules of the day of composition, one of the rules being that you don't accelerate the pace of the music through the song. You remain consistent with what you've got. According to him, he said, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted something that was going to build bigger and bigger and bigger, that was going to accelerate and unfold, as it were, layers of emotions as this musical piece went. And that's what he began to write. Robert Plant, the lead singer, the the lyricist for the band, sat down and started to come up with some lyrics that would fit this beautiful musical score. And here's some of what he came up with. There's a lady who's sure that all that glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven. When she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed, with a word, she can get what she came for. Some of you guys know that song. You're singing it in your head now. Stairway to Heaven. It's a fantastic song. The culmination of this Kennedy Center Honors program ended with Ann and Nancy Wilson, the the lead singer and guitarist from the old band Heart, stepping onto stage with a full concert orchestra and band behind them to play this song. A composer maybe greater than Jimmy Page even had set the whole thing to music in a much fuller way than just a four-man band. They had all of it. They had strings and brass and a hundred-voice choir behind them to sing. And the song began to unfold. The layers began to peel apart and the acceleration of the music began to go on and on. And the voice of Ann Wilson began to soar and the camera began to pan the crowd. Now, this is a black tie event. This is not a Led Zeppelin concert from the 70s. This is a black tie event of all these wealthy sophisticates. And it began to pan the crowd. And what you could see were people who were worshiping. I mean, it was amazing. This black tie, dignified crowd, there was a woman with her hands raised, her eyes were closed, and she was worshiping. They panned into Yo-Yo Ma. Now, if you know who Yo-Yo Ma is, he's a Chinese-American cellist, a contemporary musician, a Harvard-educated, Juilliard, brilliant musician. And there he is with his eyes closed, and he's smiling and waving like this. They're worshiping. By the time the song ends, they zero into the balcony where the guests of honor are, and Robert Plant, who wrote these lyrics, which he, by the way, said really meant nothing beyond the refrain, Robert Plant is crying. He's 75 years old, and he's so moved to tears by the worship of this song. They were worshiping. They had a glimpse as this song 
elevated and rose a stairway to heaven for them in a sense. They were worshiping. They recognized that something greater than they were was on the throne and it made sense. And it was beautiful. So why not just let it be at that? Why not just go to a Led Zeppelin concert Saturday night or maybe the orchestra, symphony orchestra, if that's more your speed, and worship there and just let it be at that? Well, it's because this door to heaven presents not just an invitation and it presents not just an observation of an event, but it also provides for you the expectation of a -a one-of-a-kind blessing. It's a blessing that can never be found except with the Ancient of Days on the throne. And it's a blessing that every human being seeks because every human being needs, and it includes eternal love. Now, you have to wonder about that and say, well, this doesn't say anything about love here. True. But it does introduce the Trinity. The Trinitarian nature of God. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's three in one. One of the great anthems of all of Scripture and of our culture as well is that God is love. We all insist on that. The Bible tells us that that's true. In fact, it's the undercurrent of Revelation as well as as God surveys all of history to demonstrate how His covenant love will prevail over all things. But how do we get there? Well, God is a trinity. He's the Father, the Spirit, the Son. Now, the Spirit is present. Did you see Him very subtly? In verse 5, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And where's the Son? Well, He's the voice. He's the trumpet speaking out and calling to John. He's the one who dictated the letters to the seven churches. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all here. We are Trinitarian in our theology, not Unitarian. Islam is Unitarian. I was this past... Tuesday at a lunch over at Redeemer Seminary to listen to Carl and Karen Ellis teach about Islam. It was a fascinating lesson. They're doing it again this coming Tuesday at lunchtime, if you're interested. And they explained a lot about Islam. It was beautiful and and fascinating to, to hear them explain this odd system of religion. The question for us, though, is understanding the Trinitarian nature of God If God is love, then who did he love before he created? Because God existed for eternity before. And even a Unitarian like in Islam must say, God, Allah, as they might call him, was there before. And before creation, what did he love? If you're Unitarian like like a Muslim, then you have to say there's only one answer to that. God loved himself. And what happens with someone who loves only themselves for all eternity? This is what we call a narcissist. This is not a healthy person. This is not someone who's able to project love to anyone else. Oh, they might surround themselves with others. They might create in order to prop themselves up, but they're only going to do that for their own good. But the true God is three in one. His love abounds and his love redeems. Revelation shows the unholy trinity which God is dismantling throughout all of history. But nothing else that you enthrone is going to ever show you love from that throne. That's part of the eternal blessing, the the eternal love of God, and then also the eternal security that this blessing provides. The throne, again, is the center of the whole scene, right? 
in verse 5, you see that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, let me just warn you, thematically, you need to get used to that statement because you're going to hear it again in Revelation. It's an indication of something very important happening. It's a signal for the change of scenery. And you'll hear it again. You'll read it again. And this signal, the lightning, the thunder, the hail later on, comes from the throne. Because God himself is the scene changer. He's in control of the whole unfolding of history. But there's another detail here that suggests the eternal security that this gospel provides. And that is in verse 6. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, in the ancient world, the sea was known to represent chaos. It was the mysterious and unpredictable force which hid its contents and rose up in a rage at a moment's notice to bring death and destruction out of which all kinds of evil could come. This is what the sea was in the ancient world. Is it not still that today? To some great extent, they say we've been out to space. We know it's there. We just don't know what's at the bottom of the ocean yet. It's still a mystery to us. In Revelation 20, you read one of the, to me, kind of most disturbing statements in all of Revelation until I understood what it meant. It says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sea. I was kind of bummed. I thought, the beach is kind of cool. And if I'm going to spend an eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be a sea? That's not what it means. It simply means that God is in control of all things. Ezekiel, in his vision, saw above an expanse clear as crystal. He could see right through it. And in Exodus 24, Moses leads the elders up Mount Sinai at God's command to dine with God. And there they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, clear as heaven. The point is this. Revelation is here to show you that even the sea is at God's feet. Calm as glass and clear as crystal. It's not a new idea. King David knew that. And that's why he wrote Psalm 11, which you heard moments ago in our worship service. David said this. Did you hear it? Do you remember what he said? He said, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, and he's kind of speaking to a a hypothetical enemy perhaps, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird, worry about the wicked, fret for the foundations? How can you say that to me? David says, no, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven, David says in that psalm, long before revelation was given to John. The Lord's eyes see everything. Everything David wrote, David recognized the blessing of seeing God's throne reigning over all that in him and in him alone is love and security everlasting in this gospel. Look, you can make out of Revelation pretty much almost anything you want. Outside of the context of all of redemptive history and God's working in the Old Testament into the New, and even now, you can make almost anything you want out of Revelation, and you could go off astray down almost any rabbit trail you want to chase. But God has declared, I am on my throne. 
And I'm in control of all things throughout all of history. And even as this odd scene unfolds in this strange last book of the Bible, I'm in control. And I will and have won because I am the one who was and who is and who forevermore will be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord our God, we give you thanks that you have called us to belong to you as your church. And you've given us the great grace and peace of your Savior and drawn us to yourself, even as we prepare to come to this communion table. Lord, would you feed our souls by faith as you, by your Spirit, work in us. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.